Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, the only podcast that talks about cars and films and TV and YouTube and all that good stuff. Later, we're going to be comparing two films that sound kind of the same, but first... <laughs> it's such a... Honestly, I'm going to interrupt straight away and say this is such a contrived pair of reviews. <laughs> It really is. For reasons that will become apparent when we get there. But first, but first what have you been watching? Well, before that, let's do uh, our little Today in History, because today, in 1976, Jajaro added the additional syllable to the front of their name, previously having been just Garo. This was swiftly followed by the D in Dedeon, the extra A in Saab, and seven of the Fs in 9 FFFFFFF. Today in History. What have we been watching? I've been to the cinema again. I went to see Ghostbusters Afterlife. Ooh, I, I'm interested. I went to see it on opening night at the IMAX in up here where I live. And it was children in need night. And the first thing I saw when I went in were 15 people dressed in Ghostbusters cosplay raising money for children in need. The crowd was rather partisan, shall we say. Yeah, I was going to say, you've really come to... They're not going to be going, oh, no, this is rubbish. They're not going to be judging it objectively, are they? If they all come, if they arrive in a rickety Ecto-1 and jump out with <laughs> proton packs on their backs, then... There were there were the like original Ghostbusters proton packs. A couple of them had got the big tanks from Ghostbusters 2. It was deeply impressive. Um, so, Ghostbusters Afterlife... I will. I went in knowing almost nothing, so I'm going to be very, very unspoilery. I am a huge Ghostbusters fan. I've bought it probably on about as many formats as I have Back to the Future, and this really excited me for many, many reasons. One of them primarily being that this is part of the same universe as the 1984 film and the 1989 film, and it's directed by Jason Reitman, the son of Ivan Reitman, who did the first two films. The story is uh, basically this family who are evicted from their apartment uh, go to this creepy house that uh, this woman's dad left her, who um, was a Ghostbuster. It was it was Egon's house. This is None of this is a spoiler. This is all in the trailer. And her daughter, so Egon's granddaughter, starts doing sciencey stuff and they start experiencing ghosts and so on. What does this have to do with cars, Chris? It has Ecto-1 in it. And <laughs> Is that as far... You've basically just crowbarred a movie review into here because it's got Ecto-1 in it and you just want to talk about Ghostbusters. What I will say is a couple of things. Yes, primarily. Um, if you like Ghostbusters... Watch Ghostbusters. It's really good. Still, it's one of the funniest movies of all time. It is. But also, Ghostbusters Afterlife, the more you know the f um, the original films, there are so many Easter eggs. And you honestly get those moments when they pull the covers off the Ecto-1 not knowing what it is. And uh, they find, you know, the jumpsuits and the proton packs and all this sort of stuff. Um there are some twists towards the end. If you don't want to know anything, if you want to go into it cold, avoid any reviews or spoilers or discussions because the ending, honestly, I, there were some manly coughs and dry eyes towards the end. There wasn't, there were not dry eyes. That was the thing. Um, 
it is if you like Ghostbusters, it is glorious. I think if you know nothing about Ghostbusters, I think there is an interesting kind of young adult Harry Potter type thing to it. Spoiler alert, Dumbledore dies. <laughs> Seeing Ecto-1 blazing around these small town streets with a gunner seat hanging out the side. Again, this is in the trailer. Um, a trap that's been mounted on an RC chassis effectively racing off. There is some properly good movie, not chasing, but, you know, there are great car sequences. And Ecto-1 is really a character centre of it. If you like it, go. If you like fantasy adventures and you know nothing about Ghostbusters, go. If you are going to think, oh, well, this is just, it's not a reboot. They're just cashing in. There is a lot of cashing in. There is a lot of nostalgia some people are cynical. The reviews have been a bit mixed, I think. I loved it. You should go and watch it if you like Ghostbusters. If you don't like Ghostbusters, still go and watch it. It's great. Also, on completely unrelated, I've, there was a YouTube video that Top Gear put out. Now, I love behind-the-scenes videos. I absolutely adore them. Because I don't think, in a lot of circles, Top Gear gets the credit for the cinematography and the work they do that goes into those films because they are stunning. I don't think they ever get the credit. I don't think people who watch Top Gear realise how much hard work goes into it. I really don't think, you know, chinless wonders on the internet criticising every episode and saying it's, you know, the same old formula and it's all scripted have Mm. any clue how much hard work goes into making the visuals they see, let alone all the rest of it. Um, I this was a really eye-opening clip to see exactly what it takes and how long it takes. Mm. There was one scene that really, I think, crystallised just how much effort goes into Top Gear, where they were shooting a an insert clip for the review of the Hurricane STO, and there was. So the so the the external scene was this car going past the camera car and rah, bah, bah. so what they did in the studio was that they revved the nuts off this hurricane so you, like the engine was rocking on its on its mounts they took the I think they either opened the lid or took the the um, engine cover off and somebody was waving a light back and forth as though light was passing over it and when you watch the actual sequence. It was less than a second, probably. But in that moment, in that sequence, it was just that moment of, here's the car, here's the outside, here's the engine, here's the spray, here's the driving. And it adds so much to it. And I genuinely, I would still to this day love to know what the budget is for an episode of Top Gear because, my God, they put the work in. They do, I think. And this is the difference between something like an episode of Top Gear or an episode of The Grand Tour and anything any YouTuber or collection of YouTubers do. They just don't have the budget and they really just don't have the time to Mm. put in to creating this kind of content, um, to putting that level of detail where they, you know, they take the thing into a studio and do that kind of shot just for a less than a one-second insert. But the whole thing put together, cut together, gives you... Uh, visuals and a feeling that you just can't really replicate 
on mm. a on a quick run and gun on a manufacturer launch or on a track day or on a you know canyon road or something like that and that is not to do down all those amazing youtubers that we bang on about all the time and that we watch <laughs> constantly but it it goes to show what full what like full on pro level mm. shoots can involve um, oh, when you, God, when yes. you've got the budget and you've got the time, and even then they probably don't have enough money and enough time. They're always working to a <laughs> um, to a deadline and to a to a budget. But it does really reveal the the depth of effort that goes into those visuals. That after a while, especially if you watch a lot of it, you can kind of just gloss over and go, "Yeah, it looks brilliant. So what?" Mm. And and I hope that that isn't the case. That every now and then you I kind of stop and go holy cow this looks amazing and i've i've banged on about this before if you go back and watch the harris leblanc era of top gear where they did two or three really great um like features together i'm thinking of the the bentley continental gt one they did which starts at the top of a mountain and goes all the way through and that looks astonishing in 4k it's so mm. beautifully shot so crisp and incredibly cut and i just think people don't notice and maybe that's you know the sign of a really great job is that no one compliments <laughs> you um if you do a bad job then the, that's when they notice but um i thought this was a really interesting watch and so if you have ever wanted to know what it takes to put together one of these review segments for top gear this is just absolutely essential watching the next item we've got on our show notes is a thing i haven't watched it says the grand tour presents carnage a trois i'm sure the internet is awash with boring same old crap <laughs> yeah um so you're going to tell us about it right there was a twitter thing that uh, the grand tour did earlier which was possible alternate titles one of which was cock monsieur which just made me chuckle this is from the trailer proper top gear silliness I was going to say it's a loving tribute. I don't know how loving it's going to be. From the trailer, this isn't a great adventure. This isn't a challenge. This isn't a single narrative. This is more like on Top Gear when they did those like 20 minute bits about they're trying to find the best SUV for caravanning and they get sort of 15 identical SUVs and they're just... Oh, yes. That's, going, that's the one where they keep taking things to the tip. <laughs> yes. And it does end with a very, very amusing chase through somebody's giant land with two rapidly <laughs> disintegrating caravans, which is one of my favourite latter-day Top Gear pieces. That but, just, it's gloriously destructive and brilliant. <laughs> so it's going to be entirely in that vein. I think it's going to be... A bit of knockabout fun. I'm I'm hoping that I'm hoping that it's good, frankly. That, unfortunately, speaking of Franks, um since the last recording, in fact, very recently to us, um, we've had the passing of Frank Williams, who, if you are of our age, which is forty, <clears throat> loomed large over the whole F one scene when we were at our most formative. Well, that's um, the thing. Williams, at the time of getting into F1 for me, were just on the brink of becoming the team that won everything. Mm. Um, they were basically what Ferrari were in the 2000s and what Mercedes are have been in the, the 2010s and particularly the, the teens of the 2010s. Williams had the best car and the best tech and they had frequently 
gifted but not brilliant drivers that just won because they mm. were in the best car. Um, and because you and I both probably both watched F1, watched Damon Hill kind of take over from Ayrton Senna after his accident. And so at that very impressionable age, uh, a Williams in blue and white with a Canon logo on the back or a Sonic the Hedgehog on the side or whatever just became the vision of a Sunday afternoon. Mm. And that is what everybody thinks of when they think of Williams. And I guess I also think of those brilliant 2002, 2003 BMW engines in slightly less than brilliant Williams cars. And, you know, Juan Pablo Montoya being JPM and just wandering around the place, being absolutely brilliant on track and not giving a flying fuck off the track. (laughs) And basically kind of almost squandering his talent because he just didn't care enough to Mm. try a bit harder. You know, he could have been champion in 2003 were it not for a very questionable FIA decision against Michelin's tyres. But I remember Williams as being, you know, the the, the 90s glory days and the early 2000s frequently on pole but just not quick enough over a race and being beaten by Schumacher. And then it all went down the shitter, let's be honest. Mm. Um, And... With a brief cameo from Mark Webber, who should have been a brilliant Williams driver, but one of one of my less liked things about Williams is the way it treated its drivers, not just Webber, but Hill, mm. Villeneuve even, Mansell, Prost. There wasn't a great deal of love for its drivers. It was seen as, well, you're all expendable. We've got the best cars. Um, and I, I've had a love-hate relationship with Williams ever since they dropped Damon for 97, just because I hold a grudge. And, you know, friends, people listening to this will know I hold a grudge and we'll be laughing (laughs) about this. But I must admit, you know, seeing Frank Williams come into the paddock, I guess it was a couple of years ago, and Mercedes did a piece where Lewis Hamilton drove him around Mm. in a Mercedes. And I think Frank joked that he'd got one lap and two minutes to try and convince Lewis to sign for Williams, <laughs> which I thought was a wonderful gag. You know it's not going to happen, but he's still wheeling, dealing, even even at his advanced mm. age there. And he hasn't looked well for years. And since they've sold the company to Dorito Capital and stepped away from the limelight, I have had in the back of my head that I wonder how sick he really was and how much he was holding on to make sure that the team was in well-funded, capable hands and that everything he'd built wasn't just going to fall down again. And it looks like it's not. And you know, all credit to Dorito Capital. It looks mm. like they're not only brilliant at making potato chips. Um, <laughs> they do appear to be giving it the backing and, they, you know, Williams are not last on the grid anymore. Very luckily mm. for them, we've got Haas for that. Um, <laughs> sorry, Gene Haas. Very I bet- much the American minority. <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, I... Again, we know this has got nothing to do with cars on YouTube, but um, I'm sad that he's gone. I'm glad Mm. that the team lives on in his name. I think everyone's had a chance this week since the news broke to kind of go back and relive their favourite Williams moments. And, you know, for me, it's going to be Damon Hill winning his title in 1996. It's going to be watching two Williams Cup drivers in the best car by a country mile get absolutely mullered in Donington 1993 by Ayrton Senna in, <laughs> in a McLaren. But, you know, those cars were so fast the rest of that season. And, you know, watching two brilliant cars with two reasonably good drivers, one of them very, very, very good, get 
just murdered, but, you know, that was always comedy. Um, any number of Juan Pablo pole laps, although I think that one that held the record for the fastest average lap time until a couple of years ago. Yeah, the Monza think, one. Yeah, maybe Kimi took it off him. But yeah, that Monza one I'm thinking of, I remember watching that live at the time and being gobsmacked. And I I <laughs> loved I loved that era of Williams. And I was always so sad when inevitably the the Cheaty Bridgestones and, and Schumacher Genius would always prevail in the race. And it made me so cross. Um, you know, look at what he's achieved. His team name still lives on. And I must admit, I've dived back into the F1 TV archive to watch a couple of my favourite Williams races. Uh, again, I'm sure I've mentioned this before on a podcast, but if you pay something like six ninety nine a month to get live timing with F1, um, you also get access to the TV archive, which is worth its weight in gold if you want to go back wow. digging. It's it's definitely worth it. Live timing when you're watching the F1 broadcast can sometimes make a dull race more interesting. Not always, <laughs> but sometimes. If you like watching a table full of numbers that go from white to yellow to green <laughs> and occasionally to purple, and sometimes I am that person, then it can yep. make a race around you know Monaco or Hungary more interesting. But more importantly than that, it gets you access to that F1 TV archive, and I do recommend going back and looking at that. Although, as I think you're about to say, there was a pile of tributes posted on podcasts and on Twitter and on YouTube. So there was very, very quickly a very good tribute on the F1 YouTube channel, which was narrated by Will Buxton, but written by Sarah Holt. And it was, it was, I think, a really, really fitting tribute. And if you, if you only watch one, and there's going to be so much at the Grand Prix next weekend. Next weekend? This weekend? Next weekend? It is next weekend, isn't it? I don't know. Whenever it is. Sorry, yes, the... Um, the driver press conference is being recorded on my Skybox as we started recording this. So, yes, it is this weekend. There's going to be a lot of tributes, um, I think, quite rightly. It did make me think about the episode we did where we actually watched uh, the Williams documentary and the McLaren documentary as a double header because I think it's it's easy in these situations to, to lionise somebody who... The Williams documentary in particular, but also the Beyond the Grid podcast that Claire Williams did, I think gave a really fair summation of the man, especially the documentary. And, and please, if you're interested, go back and listen to that episode, whichever one it is. But, be, you know, having his even then late wife telling her side of the story, Frank telling his side of the story, Claire being incredibly open about, about the family life. It's episode eight. Famous, famous racing names. Wow, was it that long ago? Yeah, go back and listen to that. But I think while you see all the tributes, I, I honestly don't think there's a better tribute than finding on... Um, you can buy it or rent it from Amazon or um, a lot of other places. I don't think it's anywhere sort of free, quote, at the moment. It is it is well worth a, uh, well worth a watch in, in Frank's honour and just getting the story of what those years were were actually like from the inside. Well, before we get on to the news, what are you drinking tonight, if anything? Ah, well, tonight I have Nicker Whiskey from the Barrel. Aha! Um, 51.4%, and this is a blend, double-matured blended whiskey, 
from the Nicker Whiskey Distilling Company Limited. Uh, this was a present uh, a few years ago, and I haven't really had all that much of it. So I was looking down my thinning collection. Uh, I need to stock up, and and thought oh, I need to have something different. So I'm trying this. It's good. It's not great, um, but yeah, not bad. I think that the problem is you can't get good Japanese whiskey for love nor money at the moment because they ran out. <laughs> as simple as that they ran out of decent whiskey because they didn't think anyone would want it and they, they were like oh shit we now we haven't got any 12 year old or 15 year old or 17 year old or anything they've drunk it all and we haven't made any more and now it's so, become fashionable do you know who that was a present from uh no me are you sure Yes, I bought that for, for you. Lent me a camera lens for an extended period of time, and that was my thank you to you. Well, there you go. And like I say, I've had I have had oh, I know a quarter of it, so um, it's not always been a go-to, but it is actually pretty nice. I am doing some consumer advice. What are you drinking? Because I've got uh, well, I've got Jack Daniel's single barrel rye, which, as Marty will now verify, comes in a very very pretty bottle. Um, it's a square bottle. It has a red label. Yes. If you like Jack Daniels or you're buying a present for somebody who likes Jack Daniels, the single barrel is a very good, decent proof version of the things you can buy for a tenner on Father's Day. As we speak, uh, Jack Daniels single barrel is down from £47 to £25 on Amazon. And if you buy it and give it to somebody as a present, they will go, ooh. Shall we go to the news? So The Drive and Donut Media are now part of the same group. Seamless there. Um, do you ever watch Donut Media? Only very occasionally. Much? When when the algorithm, with a capital A, <laughs> recommends me something, I might watch it, but I don't watch a lot of it, I must admit. Much like, even though The Driver is like a... I'm sorry, even though The Drive is a, is a huge website, I don't tend to visit it all that often. No. When I do, I kind of... I read through a ton of stuff and then and then I'm done again. I, I don't check back on it regularly unless somebody happens to link to a piece on it i was looking through the well, the drive store which is the nearest i think you'll probably get to a press release so the so the drive gets more than 10 million readers every month um donut media which started with one video like was it 10 years ago uh not even that six years ago has now uh a whole network effectively with over a dozen shows and nearly 6 million subscribers. The one thing that I find really interesting looking through this story is that they want to relaunch or re was it rekindle what was the word they used but basically pump some energy back into the drive video offerings which is one of the better things I've heard of recently. It's interesting because, yeah, if you think about a whole bunch of the YouTubers that you that kind of get you watching automotive content on YouTube, it's Matt Farah and, uh, for me, uh, Larry Casilla and obviously Chris Harris, yeah, with his Chris Harris on Cars thing that all came out of the Drive network um, way back when YouTube were funding lots of creators with that creators program and they all got together and put all these things together. And I'm still watching videos from Chris Harris, although on a different channel, and I'm still watching stuff from Matt Farrell, although it's his own um, his own 
podcast stuff and, and, and channel. And I'm still watching Larry Casilla clean cars because I'm an OCD nerd. <laughs> and I'd, I'd love to see them bring through a next generation of automotive talent mm. if they could do that. Not just get the same old people doing the same old stuff. I've got that already and I like that and I want them to stay where they are. I'd love them to bring on a new generation of people to do stuff. So there is a good chance that this could be great. We'll have to watch it and see. Um, What's next up here? You've got a bullet point that says Hammond's Workshop YouTube Technique. All the behind the scenes here. Yes. Hammond's Workshop. Have you watched it? I have not. I have. Is it good? Yes. I can see why it's on Discovery Plus. It's absolutely that Discovery Shed sort of vibe. I must. I think this is going to be a Christmas viewing thing for me. I'm going to need to watch it because I love that Discovery Shed vibe. Like I've talked about it before with those um, Mark Found, was it? Doing A Car Was Born and, no. and all of those. Mark Evans. Mark Evans, sorry. Who's Mark Found? That must be somebody different. I think that might be some something to do with rail, railways. Um, either way, I love those series, Car is Born, a Land Rover is Born, or a 4x4 is Born, whatever it was. Um, mm. So if this is anywhere near that kind of tone, I am, I'm there for it. So this is, I would describe it as the British Gas Monkey Garage. And I will explain that. Another thing I don't watch. (laughs) I'm not cool enough to watch these things because I don't drink bourbon. I can't watch American shows. (laughs) So the the premise of this series is, it's always like, oh, Richard Hammond's opening a workshop. It's a bit more than that. So there was a father and son working out of a shed in Hereford, restoring classic cars, but... The facilities were old. They did great work. They weren't really that well known. And Richard Hammond sort of had, I think he had a Jaguar and something else uh, restored by them. And he went, actually, you know, these guys could be could be great. So what they did was effectively took these two guys, their skills, their experience, and then Richard Hammond kind of brings his name and his identity and his, mar- you know, he's the kind of like the marketing guy. So he's like that Richard Rawlins sort of character. The, the arc of the series, and it's I think it's like six episodes or something. It's not long then. No, it, it's not that long, but it's essentially going from where this all starts to getting to a point where they've got a new workshop and there's work coming through. But they're really honest about the finances. They're really, really... Like, Richard Hammond has this thing where it, basically he's taken these two guys and said, you've spent 25 years building up a business. I'm going to help you take it to the next level. And in the process, puts a lot of his own money into it. There isn't the volume of work coming through to sustain the business. And it's kind of them finding out, and particularly Richard finding out, like, how do you run a business? How do you go out and get customers? There are things, and it, it, it really weighs on him that this isn't a thing, this isn't like a project where you just sort of come in, you do a thing, and then you go. It's like, these two guys are trusting me with their life's work, and I've got to, you know, make it work as a business, because if it goes bust, it's affecting them as much as it's affecting me. Um, I think there are some interesting kind of hard lessons. I think there are... The realities of business don't always line up with the dream of business. 
And there's also a really nice undercurrent of Richard Hammond going, I've spent the last 20, 30 years, whatever it is, living out of a suitcase. And if I go and do a job, I vanish for two weeks. And then I come home and I see the kids and I see the family. And then I go off for another two weeks and do something else. Whereas now I'm at home. I'm going out to work in the morning. I'm coming home in the evening. And you kind of see a bit of the family dynamic of them sort of going, okay, well, how do we kind of, as a family, deal with this? You know, what's that What's that like? So I think there's, there's plenty of scope for it to go on and go forward. And I think it will be an interesting series to watch. There has to be another series. I think it's too soon in the story to stop. One of the things that I did watch, though, before I watched the, the series on uh, Discovery Plus was there was some drive tribe behind the scenes uh, videos about Richard Hammond and about filming the show. It really, really struck me. And I know it's really easy to go, well, yes, it's Richard Hammond. He's the guy off the telly. To see him in a situation where somebody goes up to him and says, right, we're going to do a piece for YouTube about the cars that you're auctioning. So what I want you to do is just go around the cars one by one and tell us about them and what they mean to you. And he sort of goes, okay, well, do you want me to start here? Do you want me to start here? You know, is the, is, is the lighting right over there? Okay, go. And he can talk brilliantly off the cuff. He is such a professional when it comes to the ability to talk and be engaging, be relaxed, be authentic, be off the cuff. Whether it's, you know, Grant or whether it is... Uh, Discovery Plus, whether it's a YouTube video, he has that ability to just be charismatic and quick and make everything seem like it's scripted when it's not. And it's one of the things that really made me think, because we watch a lot of YouTube, I think it's fair to say. And yet I wonder how many people actually get any form of, of training or guidance in how to present stuff. I don't think they do. I find it's an interesting point because if you start watching a channel early on in its life, it's mm. re- you you kind of watch that progression from awkward in front of the camera but doing it because I'm I'm excited about trying something new. Rare is the person that comes along like an Ed Bolian type who is a fully formed character who mm. just happens to be in front of the camera. It, it takes someone who is already a proficient public speaker or a who has that persona like a salesman which Bolian was or <laughs> like a you know a, a radio dj which is what Hammond did before mm. you know moving on to television becoming a, a a broadcaster and a journalist before going in front of the television where if you're a live radio dj you need to be able to speak with clarity and with authority without saying um and er uh, and He's had 20 years of making television to hone his craft. And yeah, you know, your average YouTuber is not going to have those skills. And I'm interested to know whether or not they develop those skills as much as, you know, they might be flogging Skillshare licenses or, you know, talking (laughs) about how they spent forever editing this thing in Final Cut Pro or whatever. But do they actually try and present better and, Mm. and so on? I was talking about the art of presenting something on YouTube and explaining things. And there's a few channels, I think, that really do 
a great job in explaining, particularly if it's like stuff where you're working on a car and it's mechanical stuff. Legit streetcars. Um, mm. Alex from Legit Streetcars is brilliant at taking something that looks horrifically complicated, like undoing a Mercedes hydraulic suspension system that is running at 3000 PSI and troubleshooting it and making it seem like that's just something you could do. You know, <laughs> it, it's just him in a garage with some tools and he makes it seem completely natural and he's talking and he's very knowledgeable. And that's... That's a gift, and I don't think every every YouTuber has it. I think some of them are better than others. I think if you were to watch someone like Sam Crack, who mm. seems to most of the time be trolling his audience <laughs> and not actually committing to making a good decisions and buying good cars and doing good work, I think half the time he's just doing it to piss people off. Um, but then look at someone like Tavares, who, who's getting better and better at presenting getting you know taking on more and more ambitious projects but equally is is probably putting out fewer videos than he ever has because the projects are getting bigger and bigger and the the mm. the amount of time needed to deliver them to the required quality both for the videos and for the actual car itself or the build itself or the series in the case of car trek means there's more work behind the scenes and i think they're starting to learn that lesson if you look at something like the the upcoming matt farah thing all cars go to heaven season three mm. that's probably started to take on the aspects of a you know one of these smaller broadcast tv shows anyway you know what we've talked about way too long before we get to our tenuous tenuously themed reviews yes why don't you start us off with drive <laughs> i've been wondering whether or not we should review this movie for a long time because of its title and because of the profession of the principal character who is known only as driver uh, he doesn't get a a name or any real kind of backstory. So this is a 2011 movie called Drive. It's directed by a director called Nicholas Winding Refn. stars Ryan Gosling as the titular driver, along with a pretty starry cast, to be honest. You've got Brian Cranston in there, hot off of Breaking Bad at the time. Carrie Mulligan, who I think this was quite an early role for her. I remember her best as having starred in the best episode of Doctor Who, The Weeping Angels. Yes, and an, an education, which was very good. Yes, she did that, and then an education for which I think she was Oscar nominated, and then she did Drive, and she's since gone on to do a whole bunch of other stuff. She's astonishing in everything she does. But there's also Albert Brooks, Ron Perlman, who is a proper, hey, it's that guy, makes every movie he's in <laughs> 70% better. Oscar Isaac shows up, sort of, wow, kind of, very slight, I want to say pre-fame. I don't know if that's fair. You know, there's, there's a, it's a hugely starry cast. Christina Hendricks turns up as well, and she's fantastic. It's a really starry cast for a movie that was made for, I believe, something along the lines of fifteen million dollars. So, Ryan Gosling is a stuntman turned getaway driver. Um, he's a Hollywood stunt driver who is perpetually got a toothpick in the corner of his mouth, looking cool in a bomber jacket with a scorpion on on the back. He. <laughs> By day, he's doing stunts. He's doing rollover stunts and doubling for for Hollywood stars. And by night, he also works for criminals as a, a, a getaway specialist. He's very clever at driving. He has he has an interesting rule where he's like, "You've got me for this five minute window, and whatever happens before that doesn't matter. I turn up. You've got five minutes with me, and then I leave." 
which makes no sense in the context of <laughs> getting away. Because what if it takes six minutes to get away from the police? Does he just drop them off and drive off? I don't know. <laughs> I have a feeling that may have been something that was in the script and sounded cool. It starts off with what in any other director's hands could easily have been like a whiz-bang car chase with loads of sliding and shots of cars barreling down alleyways and so on. And it's the exact opposite of that. This is art house car chase. This is like, what if Baby Driver was was cooler and none of the driving was shot from outside the car and Baby Driver never said anything and there was an 80s synthwave soundtrack? That's, <laughs> that's what this feels like. So you've got an opening car chase where... He's driving a pair of robbers who've robbed a place, trying to get away from the police. He's got the police band on the radio and everything is shot from within the car. There is no exterior shot of the car doing anything. There's no drifting. There's no nothing. It's all done inside the car, concentrating on the driver himself and his movements, his his where he's looking, how he's planning to outwit the cops. It's a totally different approach to a car chase. And it's very stylish. It reminds me very much of early Michael Mann in the kind of... There's a bit of heat in there in the way that he's picked bits of LA that you don't normally see to shoot in. After that kind of mega intro, you meet the driver doing his day job, being Hollywood stuntman, and then you find out that his next-door neighbour is this... No, I want to say single mum. She's not single mum, but I'll come to that in a minute. But she's a single mum with a little boy who who kind of who looks up to the driver, and her husband is in jail, and he he reappears, and the story kind of takes a turn. It starts out of this kind of very kind of sweet platonic relationship between the driver and this next door neighbor Irene who takes a shine to the driver who's taken a shine to her little son who's very cute um and then her husband comes out of jail and immediately reads the driver as being a crook and says hey you know what you can be the driver for this job which goes wrong and then the film takes a total pivot and the and and it goes nasty and it turns into a proper noir and to be quite honest, there's bugger all action in it to do with cars. There's no reason for this film to be on this podcast whatsoever, <laughs> other than the fact that it's called Drive. There is a moment, and we're going to go into this because this is what we do. There is a moment where the, the driver is being, effectively, he and his his kind of fixer, the guy that gets him all these Hollywood jobs and also gets him all of the the criminal jobs and the the, the the getaway driver jobs is also trying to go straight and set up a business where they buy a NASCAR and they're going to run around like local, I, I guess, I don't know. I don't really understand how NASCAR works, if I'm honest. <laughs> Sorry, Americans. Um, they do like local races first. So I don't know, very small ovals and then slightly mm. bigger ovals and so on and so on. Yeah. You know, they, they're, the plan is this guy is so good at driving they're going to use him as the driver. They, they, His criminal partners basically front the cash to buy this NASCAR. And when the guy is talking over what a great bargain this was for $300,000, and he even describes the slick tyres as having plenty of tread, which for some reason stuck with me. Like he's going, like it's a regular car that's got nice big deep, it's got six miller tread, it's not going to fail its MOT, <laughs> while pointing at a slick tyre that has no tread. But like I say, there's there's... This is not Six Underground. This is not Baby Driver by any means. There's no 
gloriously cleverly shot car chases or anything it's it's such a character drama and it's a noir character drama it's it's very cool it's full of brilliant quiet beautifully acted performances i'd say it's worth a watch you might find it a bit too art house you might find it a bit too pretentious but i've really really enjoyed this it's a proper mood piece and is this is the movie that got me into synthwave because the soundtrack is astonishing the soundtrack is is the 80s euro pop and well, I don't think it was even called Synthwave then, but it's basically that kind of 80s-style synthesizers with frequency-modulated synthesis and big drums played on drum machines with lots of reverb, but with modern production techniques, so far more crisply recorded and mastered. Honestly, just go to um, Spotify and type in Synthwave. But, you know, listening to this soundtrack got me into all manner of synthwave bands like The Midnight, FM84, Carpenter Brute, LeBrock, Gunship, Comtrues. Honestly, it's my it's one of my favourite genres, and that's because of listening to this soundtrack. It's a brilliant soundtrack. The score is done by Cliff Martinez, who used to be in Pop Will Eat Itself, which is a band that's from very close to my hometown, but has since gone on to become a very in-demand Hollywood soundtrack author, has done loads of stuff you'll have heard of, and... His soundtrack is just as cool. But it's hard for me to go on and on about this movie with, you know, car-related stuff in it because there's just none there. You know, there's there's NASCAR, but it is totally secondary to the plot point. It's in it for like five seconds and it's done. There's car chases, but not like you've seen them before. And so it's it's all character-driven and internal and they take that with the camera angles as well you know all the interior driving stuff was shot inside using a rig they call the biscuit rig because they developed it for a film called sea biscuit oh yes um i have a feeling this is like the precursor to the kind of driving rigs you see now where the driver is is on top of the car controlling the vehicle so that the actor inside can appear to be driving the vehicle but is actually you know can can do their acting as it were and that is acting in the <laughs> team america world police <laughs> <laughs> use your acting um no that's unfair this is a great movie i enjoy watching ryan gosling in almost anything he's really really good but he's excellent in this carrie mulligan is takes a part that's quite thin it's it's it could be in the hands of a lesser actress it could be nothing and she makes it something it's worth a watch it is not our usual stuff and the only reason it is in this review is so that we have this following tenuous link <laughs> from a movie called drive to chris's review we're going to go into overdrive oh very good it's almost like we planned this. <laughs> oh, by the way, I must say, we're really sorry about that. It was a dreadful <laughs> gag. Uh, if you're not a fan of 80s drenched neon art house movies, then we apologise. We just wanted to do a silly joke about going from drive to overdrive. Overdrive, a film I hadn't heard of until quite recently, when friend of the show Matt Lange said oh, you know, Overdrive, it's it's an awful film. It's, you know, it's like the worst car film ever. And I thought, interesting challenge, because we have watched some fairly awful films on this podcast. So I thought, right, let's watch Overdrive and see how bad it is. <laughs> the plot of it is two half-brothers steal a Bugatti Transatlantic, which is 
very famous. Uh, they steal it having just come from an RM Sotheby's auction and they steal it, but it's been bought by a shadowy figure who is a crime boss and he pulls them to his compound and says, you know, you've you've messed with the wrong person. You know, you've got to go off and steal me this 250 GTO. Otherwise, I will kill you in a week. And one of them was like, oh, God, this was going to be my last job. I was going to, like, retire and, and have a life with my wife. And the other one goes, when were you thinking of telling me this? And he goes... I just did. Amazing scripting. I could not think of any better way to say that. I Exactly. And they have to get a crew together and there are problems that have to be overcome. There is a climax where one of them thinks they're going to be killed by the baddie. One, uh, the, one of the brother's girlfriends gets kidnapped and is threatened unless they do their, their thing and, and get the car. And Is there a moment where a man with no hair wearing a white vest, says something to another man where he says, hey, man, he was in my face. And the guy goes, I, <laughs> I'm in your face. And then the camera cuts back to the man with a potato face, but with the other guy's face in his face. <laughs> Nothing nearly that witty. Tuna sandwiches. There are no tuna sandwiches. You know, overnighting parts from Japan. No, no. Oh, right, let's get onto the cars. So this is... Um, we have to kind of pick, pick this apart on several levels. So it stars Scott Eastwood, son of Clint, who has learnt to do the the um, uh, the the what's it called? Not the wincing, the kind of the squint, squint. That's it. Um, that's the extent of his acting range. Um, it's filmed in. So it's all set in Marseille. It's got the guy who was Alex Dimitriov from um, Casino Royale playing like, the, you know, the crime boss of Marseille and is like, this is my town. And because it's set in France, like, it seems to have been funded by about 12 different production companies and they've just raided other people's car collections. The, the So Alex Dimitriov, I can't remember what the character's name is. He's just that guy from Casino Royale. He's like, come on, you know, say to these two brothers, like, come with me, I will show you many beautiful things. And he shows him this car collection where the production company has obviously gone to a car collector that somebody in the crew knows and they're going around sort of like oh my god you've got a shelby mustang is that a 69 no it's a 71 is that one with the four-speed overdrive yes it is oh my god is that the uh, what you know the 1942 alfa romeo 851 that uh, that uh, ascari drove in monaco yes it is wow that's amazing so they just cram in all of this stuff to try and make it into a car film um it's it's a little bit about family it's um it has you know it has a crew who has to go and do a thing and there's a twist um they have to go and steal a, a 250 gto good news the crew found a ferrari collector so when they go to that garage there's a 250 gto and an enzo an f40 an f50 some other red things um <laughs> and sorry matt <laughs> to get the crew oh no it, it, it honestly they've just gone to some collector like chris evans not chris evans because he he's on but somebody sort of gone and said do you mind if we borrow all of these ferraris and they've gone yes we put them in a white room yes and then it's like we're gonna need drivers don't worry i know the best drivers in france four guys sorry four people turn up i think two guys two girls they turn up in a 997 3.6 gt3 
a Mini Cooper, possibly a works, a GTR and a Honda Civic Type R. Why? We don't know. Do we ever see the cars again? No. It's to prove that they are authentic petrol heads. And to be fair, turning up in a 3.6 GT3 does show taste. It does. Um, and, yeah, it basically plays out the way you would think a, a kind of a heist film would play out. It's worth pointing out at this point, actually, if you look at the cast and crew, there are no names you will recognise. There's that guy from Casino Royale. He's like the biggest name in it. The two writers have written two other films I have watched. One is Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> the worst Fast and Furious movie by a country mile. And yep. even that is, is that's a low bar anyway, but come on. <laughs> the other is Wanted. And I, have you ever seen Wanted? I have. This is... Um, James McAvoy, Angelina Jolie, Morgan Freeman. And Chris Pratt turns up, doesn't he? He plays a character in there. Does he? He does. I think he's the boyfriend that's, that steals what's-his-face's girlfriend. Oh, God, it is. Yes. Yes. Who's the, who's the kind of the, the idiot? If you haven't seen Wanted, it is a fairly awful film. Bullets can go round corners. If you Bullets can go round corners. You can slow down your perception of time and do amazing things. But this is a fraternity of assassins. And the, the front for their organisation is that they are weavers. And the way that they find their next target is via the Loom of Fate, which is not me making it up. It is literally called the Loom of Fate. And by looking at the uh, stitches that the Loom creates, that gives them their next target. That is far cleverer than anything you will find in Overdrive. Scott Eastwood is trying to be the kind of combination of like Nick Cage in Gone in 60 Seconds, a bit of Vin Diesel. You know in Scott Pilgrim, when you've got, um, what's his name, playing Lucas Lee, Chris Evans. Yes. And he's, he's playing that guy in a leather jacket who's such a big star. That's what Scott Eastwood is trying to do and failing miserably. He has all the charisma of a soggy cardboard box, but he can <laughs> wince. Isn't he in the Fast franchise? Isn't he like the... Wasn't he in Fast 8 or something? He was the he was the sidekick to Mr. Nobody and he was rubbish and everyone mocked him all the time. <laughs> Let me... I, I think we need some uh, immediate research on this. Um... What's he known for? He was in Suicide Squad, Fast 8, Fast and Furious 8, playing a character called Little Nobody. <laughs> How appropriate. Yes, he's he's been in a lot of stuff. Obviously, none of it memorable. Um, the rest of the cast are largely interchangeable. They go through every sort of thing. You can kind of map it. You, somebody's watched Ocean's Eleven and gone, we need somebody who's got a pickpocket. We need somebody. So, like, the first time you see um, Scott Eastwood's girlfriend, she's typing things into a terminal window on a laptop. Therefore, she has computer skills. These are never addressed again for the rest of the film. <laughs> she is elite hacksaw. <laughs> she absolutely is. Here's the thing. If you were to kind of draw the dots of a heist film, these hit all of those points. It does it without any style, without any cleverness. It has no charisma. It has driving sequences, which are largely decent. But going back to what we were saying earlier, 
the problem is you can find better stuff in an episode of Top Gear. You can find better stuff by Grip Productions or Tangent Vector or any of these production houses that we now know who do great car, you know, car-to-car driving content. That um, uh, Vaughn Gittings Jr. video of him going down the ring or the P1, you know, when it spits up the bit of rubber when it's going around Anglesey. All far better than what you find in this film. There are some car stunts, so there's like um, some Mark 1 focuses chasing... <sighs> they have to prove themselves on in an airport, so they drive... A, what would it be? Like a three series cabrio and a mid level six series for some reason. Um, and they're being chased by these Mark 1 focuses. And there are some stunts where there's obviously an air cannon that flips one of them, and another police car drives into a concrete barrier and the back like skips up and it flips end over end. But the problem is, it's just, it's not bad. This is the thing. Super fast is bad i found talladega night bad i have to admit i seem to remember in our huge rewatch of the fast and furious series which probably is episode 30 that would have too fast and furious in although it's stupid it's ridiculous and it is by far the worst of the series it's still fun i still like being Mm. around these characters it still has funny moments it still has memorable moments I, I haven't seen Overdrive, but I have just loaded the Rotten Tomatoes reviews page for Overdrive. <laughs> so before Chris rounds this one off, I'm going to share a couple of, of choice reviews. This one from the critic of the Los Angeles Times says, quite a few times in the plastic action splat called Overdrive, characters <laughs> characters say to their antagonists some variation of, you must think I'm stupid. I'm sorry to break it to you, Overdrive, but all of you is stupid. <laughs> Or Marianne Johnson writes for Flick Philosopher. That's not a, that must be a movie, re- movie review website. She says, more plot holes than plot. This overly convoluted, deeply stupid Fast and Furious wannabe is crammed with cliches and memorable only when it's laughable. Yep. However, there is somebody who, uh, filmjerk.com, claimed that this is not a great movie, but quite a bit of fun and better than any of the Fast and Furious movies they've been making for the last decade. Ooh, not sure I believe that one. But yeah, there's no the most no, tell- no, 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 no. the most no, no. telling thing on the Rotten Tomatoes thing is it just says audience reviews for Overdrive, and then there's just a line that says there are no audience reviews for Overdrive at this time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gets twenty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It, it's 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 crap. Uh, although I did notice that it's got Anna Damaris in it, who is a decent actress, so she must have been slumming it in an early role. Yeah, she. So she is the girlfriend. And she is basically like the jeopardy, the class in it. As I say, it's not a bad film. It's just like a Fisher-Price heist film. It's all of those cliches, all of that. You know, you, if you sort of drew your, your sort of first draft, it was like they kind of submitted that and they went, yeah, let's do that. And it's like, no, 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 Like it needs a polish and it needs a better twist and we need actors that actually have some chemistry and charisma. And they went, no, this is this will do. I, I, rather appropriately, actually had a, had an email from Amazon because I rented it from Amazon Prime. And whenever you get anything from Amazon, you always get an email from them. And um, I got a... Uh, oh, I'm trying to quickly find it because the wording of it was... Um, the headline of it was, 
Did Overdrive meet your expectations? <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> my expectations were low and they were met, basically. Um, I think it's... Uh, here's how I best sum it up. If you if you look at IMDb and again take these figures with a grain of salt, the box off uh, sorry the budget was estimated uh, twenty four point three million euros, so sizable. More than Drive. More than Drive. The opening weekend in the US. Guess how much? Two million. Four thousand seven hundred and ninety seven dollars. Oh my god, that is a hell of a flop. However, the total gross in the US. Wow. That's not good. I mean, did it make anything up internationally? Did the French go crazy for it? Did the man with a big car collection invite all of his friends to see it? (laughs) No. The worldwide gross was $9.6 million on a budget of 24. There was another movie that we reviewed that had like that incredibly... I can't remember what it was. It was quite a recent one that had a reasonable size budget and then didn't make any of it back and you we were wondering then who it is was it that, super, uh, super fast is it super fast who, who who's willing to just pump money into something that is just so dreadful that i mean from what you've said it just sounds like an average kind of photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy action movie but mm. that's some tragic box office by contrast, Drive was made for $15 million and made 80-something million dollars, which mm. is a huge return on investment. It's it's nothing in in action movie terms, mm. but it got so much critical acclaim. It got Oscar nominations. It got yep. Cannes Film Festival Awards. It, it's huge. It made a lot of, you know, um, movie reviewers top tens of the year. And, and I think it... It has a following. If you like art house, if you like mood pieces, it's a it's a great movie. And this is not that. We just no. slung it in there so that we could have that stupid gag. Um, so there we have it. Drive and then Overdrive. There is one redeeming feature about this film. There's one thing that they got right. The running time is about 90 minutes. And that's it. <laughs> it's short. <laughs> they got in, did it. Got out. Well, there we have it. Drive and then into Overdrive. We went into Overdrive, but we discovered, much like I think one of those Top Gear things, was it James May had a car that just had an Overdrive gear knob, but didn't actually have Overdrive in it. <laughs> was that the like the Lamborghini Miracle or something? I can't remember, but some one of them just maybe or maybe it was Hammond's um, Triumph Dolomite in the the British Leyland film where it had an overdrive gear knob but didn't actually have an overdrive. I think that's what we've done here. Anyway, let's move on because we've been we're talking about movies that probably people shouldn't watch. Um, <laughs> let's let's <laughs> talk about something that they should. Yes, uh, Henry Catchpole. What's he been up to this week? He's been driving a McLaren 720S GT3X. Yes, which is a car I like very much because it's for fat businessmen who like to drive racing cars that can't actually compete. Henry Catchpole doing what he does very, very well, basically being strapped into a £700,000 McLaren race car and like talking as he drives. I think, what can you say? It's it's typical Henry Catchpole. It's, it's very good. It's very charming. I think it's... An interesting car explained well. This car has done the rounds. Top Gear have had it for oh, their, yes. their Speed Week. They've done a feature in it, which was, uh, I think, a slightly bit more whiz-bang 
than, mm. than is Henry style. I really like this because there's a moment halfway through where he says, let's do a POV onboard with McLaren driver, you and Hanky, because I think it's cool. And he's right. Yep. It is cool. And you go and you watch the, the pro driver drive it beautifully all the way around. And, you know, when the tail end steps out, he applies the corrective lock in one motion and then just waits for the car to sort itself out and gathers it up and off he goes. And it's glorious. It's brilliant. I thought this was, this is the sign of, this is the high quality that you get with a, a production team like Henry mm. and his Carfection collaborators. They don't have the budget or the time of a Top Gear or a Grand Tour. If they did, they'd be able to produce content that is easily as good. It, this was beautifully shot, probably done on the run. They had probably barely any time, and it just doesn't show it whatsoever. I thought this was a really slick beautifully made clip that needs more views people go and watch this it's really good even though they're only making like 15 of these cars and you're never going to see one it's still really cool <laughs> also um, we mentioned in the last say, episode I, the, before we move on my favorite thing about this video other than the you and hanky pov and just henry's general demeanor and the whole thing is when you watch the screen as he goes it tells him that he's on engine map 12 and then it switches to a little graphic that says go baby go <laughs> on the screen of the of your of your seven hundred and twenty thousand pound not GT three racing eligible McLaren, <laughs> somebody has put a uh, a clip from what I think is nicked from Armageddon, where in the truck that lands on the meteor and jumps across a canyon on the meteor, the gear lever has a light on it that says "Go baby go," and that is why you listen to the Auto Movie Podcast. Um, we, we mentioned in the last episode actually that Carfection have been doing a lot of good content recently um, one of which was George Collado driving and reviewing the Janetta G56 Academy car I think it was because they kind of all have, have vaguely the same name a car which, although it's quite old, now looks like the rear end of an F8 Tributo. I think the back of the Ferrari just looks like a Ginetta. Anyway, he he basically gets into a car as a guest driver, reviews it during the race, and <laughs> you follow him through a race weekend. And he he's not one of the best presenters on there, but his ability to drive in a race, in a foreign car, talk, get on the podium in his class... That's got to be applauded. Can you imagine if, let's say, Max Verstappen was a completely different human being with charm and <laughs> poise and presence? Uh, can you imagine him, you know, leading away in his cheaty, bendy wing Red Bull and just reviewing the car as he drove along while the rear wing flexed <laughs> and his traction control system stopped the wheel spin and his front wings drooped and his cheaty engine gulped in more fuel than it's allowed to? <laughs> Not that I'm implying that any of this is happening, but of course it all is. Anyway, no. yeah, it's like watching... It, it, I, I watched a bit, of, a bit of this and thinking, yeah, this is this would be like, I don't know, Colin McRae reviewing his Focus WRC while <laughs> hurling it down a stage in the Welsh Rally or something. But no, no, it, it'd be more like... You remember when Colin did some... He did some, like, one-off appearances for Citroen? And he, yes. like, he, he basically, like, would turn up... And they'd be like, Colin, please, you're Zara. And that like was the so first time he drives it. He, he did a, I don't know if he did a whole season for them. I think he might have done because he he mm. went, he finished second to Loeb on the Monty 
and then was nowhere for the rest of the year because by that point Loeb had already ruined rallying by going, no, there will be no <laughs> drifting. Everything must be done in straight lines. And he'd already gone in like filled with McRae's diffs to remove all the drifty drifty. And McRae was like, I don't know what to do with this thing. It just drives around corners. I, d- I don't understand. Does not compute. And was pretty much nowhere for the rest of the season apart from that one Monty where clearly Loeb didn't have time to rush around and did sneak in a differential in the back of McRae's car where normally there's just a big solid axle. <laughs> Length of scaffolding tube between the two I'm wheels. I'm being very facetious. But yes, I, it was. it would be like that, you know, jumping into an unfamiliar car and just reviewing it. I'm sure... Harris could do that kind of thing and and probably does do for a lot of these TV things where he jumps into a racing car that he's never driven and then gives us his thoughts in 10 minutes. Uh, but I really enjoyed that. I thought it was quite fun. Like you say, Carfection have been doing some interesting stuff. Uh, Alex Goy's done a piece on the Ferrari Dino. It's got a short little mm. seven-minute film on the Dino, which I thought was a lovely little... Um, a lovely little tale. So, yes, do check them out. Let's quickly skip on to... YouTube pick of the show. Uh, YouTube pick of the week. Uh, what are your? What's your video pick for the for the episode? So my video pick is from Haggerty. It's uh, Jason Camisa's. The new 911 GT3 is the most important Porsche of them all. Strong words. Very strong. But what he does, which I think is really really good in this episode, is it's not just about the new car because that would be kind of easy but what he does is he drives the entire gt3 lineup up to this point so it's i think it's some porsche facility or another some like experience center in the us but he basically sort of goes here's the 996 here is you know here is what's great about that here's the 997 here's what they changed here's how it affected it here's what they did with this and he actually drives each car and kind of puts each one in context so there's some stuff towards the end where he's he's basically just doing like hot laps in the cars but like the first sort of you know 15 minutes or so is like a really nice well-researched insightful view of the GT3 lineage, basically, up to uh, this point. And I think the reason why it really struck a chord with me was there has been a podcast from Collecting Cars. Which yeah, yeah are- I was going to wonder if you were going to bring this up. Andy Proniger is on the Collecting yes. Cars podcast with Chris Harris, and it is easily their best podcast episode today. And there have been some big names on that podcast. Nikki Grist springs to mind um, mm. with some great tales. But this is just a stunning insight into what it takes to develop the GT3, how it came about, the 996, all the way through. Um, for those that don't know, Andy Proniger is head of GT cars at, um, at yep. Porsche. He's he's the man that started out driving them and saying what it should, what a GT car should be, and and you know he he's responsible for some of the best cars. And there's a, an hour and a half podcast where he just talks through <laughs> his career, and it is riveting stuff. So. I'd highly recommend that. You know, we're on one podcast, recommend you go listen to a far more <laughs> famous podcast. But I do want to check this out. I liked Jason Camisser a lot. I really enjoyed his stuff with Motor Trend when he did um, head-to-head with, uh, who am I thinking of? Johnny Lieberman. Um, and then he was replaced by Jethro Bovingdon, who 
has now gone on to do more stuff with Motor Trend. Um, I I would love. I haven't seen this. I really want to now because it sounds really interesting, and I haven't watched Jason Kamiser do something in a while. So this sounds like something to check out. It's kind of interesting listening to the podcast, knowing GT cars as we do, which is to say, in kind of in limited passing. What's really interesting is that is that Andreas is really good at the stories and the idea behind it and why we did certain things, why that model is different from this model and how they they evolved it from one to the next. But I think listening to it, because we haven't driven the whole lineup and we don't know them intimately, it's quite a nice companion to actually sort of go back and remember not only how we think of them now, but how they were thought of at the time as well. And I think both of those are are good examples of that. Uh, My channel, again, I I have to thank a listener for this. Um, Tim Wilkes got in touch with a channel called Making for Motorsport, which I love. It's now just something that I think is, is, is perfect. It's a great example of what YouTube does, which is one guy effectively how to use technology to go faster for less money. And it's quite in-depth in things like 3D modelling, 3D printing, building an ECU, you know, making um, inlet trumpets for a, for a throttle body on a 3D printer. It's really getting into the sort of the nitty-gritty of a very specific bit of manufacturing. And it's not a bad obsession motorsport where it's... It's, you know, welding stuff and grinding stuff and making brackets. This is much more the kind of the more modern, the more sort of technological end of things. And it's if you like that sort of stuff, if you have an interest in it, if you have a curiosity in it, you can fall down a rabbit hole. And it's really good, accessible, interesting content from somebody who's really engaged in it. And it's it's worth a watch if that sounds like it tickles your pickle <laughs> what a wonderful turn of phrase um, <laughs> my video choice is from a channel i think i featured on the podcast a long time ago it's called scarf and goggles they do a lot of stuff with land speed record stories i love land speed record cars i love land speed record stories so um something popped up in my timeline. Uh, This is about Henry Seagrave's sensational land speed record car called the Golden Arrow. And if you know anything about land speed record cars, this car will jump into your thoughts immediately. It's this sort of Art Deco style land speed record car with huge rounded um, Michelin tires that look nothing like the kind of thing you'd see now. And it's, it is like the archetypal, if it's not you know, if, if the archetypal land speed record car is the Bluebird, this is like the second one along. And it, the gold reminds me very much of the the gold that um, Thrust 2 was painted in in mm. the mid the mid 1980s. And it's a wonderful story. It's really well told. It's it's very slightly very slightly. It's very nerdy. Um, but I think <laughs> uh, loving land speed records requires you to be a bit nerdy. This is this is a really well told tale, really well presented with a bunch of fantastic photographs of the story of Henry Seagrave's Golden Arrow car. So please watch it and then check out all the other stuff on Scarf and Goggles because it's really, really good. Um, And for my channel, I think we might have featured this one before too. Um, Chris, I think, maybe called them out a few episodes ago. This is Driftworks. And I 
have not watched any of this stuff until like two weeks ago when the algorithm recommended me a video about Phil's Lamborghini. Um, And I knew of this car because people I follow on Insta know Phil from Driftworks and uh, featured his, I think Al Clark made a small uh, video with this Lamborghini Merchilago that had been extensively modified <laughs> and, and sort of dropped and made as this writer GT1 tribute car. And I just went, I don't know anything about this. I'm going to watch this. And I watched one of them. And then I just kept watching, obsessively watching <laughs> everyone going, I can't believe this. And there's a part of it that is... I grew up in the Midlands. You wouldn't know it from my accent, but I grew up in the Midlands and they're from Birmingham and they're in a lockup on an industrial estate, which is like <laughs> any number of industrial estates I went round as a kid. And they're doing amazing things in a dirty, freezing shed with bits <laughs> littered around the corners. None of this is like the channels I follow in the US. And I mean, even you know someone like Tavarish's big old unit has got cars everywhere, but it still seems clean and neat and tidy, mm, whereas and all, all of these sheds have got grotty roofs that probably, the only reason they don't have asbestos dangling on is that um, they've probably, it's already fallen off already. It's always cold. Doesn't seem to see <laughs> what time of year, they're always cold. But the people involved are working miracles with materials to mm. make, you know, 3D printed um, velocity stacks or make brand new suspension adapters and the the two there's there's driftworks um and then there's sort of i guess a business that i think is next door dino talk that does a lot of the yeah. fabrication um, which is even more brummy even more brummy and even more scratty and 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 yet <laughs> they've got unbelievable uh, material skills welding skills fabrication skills the workmanship here is absolutely top drawer and it's being done by a man in a scruffy shop that's just got cack littered everywhere around it and i say cack i mean that affectionately it's like you know there's an engine there and there's a pile of scrap there that actually turns out to be a bunch of chassis bits and and so on and so on and i I watched all of the lambo stuff across a series of days just marveling at the fabrication skills and the ambition and and seeing how it all came together and then there's phil's v10 m3 which he built years and years ago and i think it was magazine featured and then he sold it to somebody in germany and then he goes back and rescues it and comes back and restores it and the restoration process is unbelievable like taking all of the sealant off the underside of the body to to fix all the problems there and then reseal it with new stuff and i it's amazing and then quite recently i watched craig from dino talk talk about putting an a an ls4 supercharged engine in a first gen aston martin v8 vantage and i want one like really badly i love <laughs> i love the v8 vantage shape i love the v8 vantage sound mm. i think it's glorious it's a shame that they're actually quite slow and people don't seem to like them very much although they're really expensive at the moment but i would love to have a, like a total sleeper that has a supercharged <laughs> LS4 in it because it sounds evil and it will do 11s all day long and is putting out something like 560 horsepower at the wheels with a very mild tune on it. Wow. And again, workmanship in installing it is astonishing. They've got wiring looms. They've made everything work brilliantly with the with the dash. You know, they say themselves, although... I think they gloss over some of their expertise some, sometimes. They're talking about how everything has to work. It has to work perfectly. Otherwise, it's not usable. 
So mm. they've integrated, you know, the, the 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 crate engines, electronics are all integrated with the Aston electronics via some kind of CPU magic. It's an astonishing build. I, I recommend you go and look at Driftworks and all of the videos on there. There's some really amazing stuff on there, amazing workmanship. And uh, it's just, it was such a refreshing change after watching so many of these US-centric build videos and especially some of the stuff like, uh, you know, beers for build where ambition can often exceed ability in some instances or or Mm. things are done to look cool but aren't maybe necessarily thought through from a functional standpoint everything that driftworks do has been even though it might look like it's a bunch of brummies slinging stuff together in a workshop (laughs) it absolutely isn't it's the exact opposite of that apart from the brummy thing one thing that i will say and we talked earlier, we talked several times about people on YouTube being able to be themselves and, and be on camera as themselves rather than, you know, presenting or writing a script or, or trying to be something that they're not. They recently did a video that was the first time Phil drove his 992 GT3 at Donington with uh, Al Clark in his 996. And they spent the whole thing going sideways. And yes. I spent the whole video going, how have you not been black flagged and thrown off? <laughs> but I love that they can make a video that is, and I, I, I mean this with the grace of respect, because I know that it's not an easy thing to capture, but it comes off effortless in the way that they're, they're, they're filming it and they're chatting and they're, it's two mates at a track day. Yeah, it's one of the best two mates at a track day videos I've seen. And I know, I think Phil says on quite a lot of these videos that it takes a long time to edit these and he he tends mm. to downplay how how good he is at editing. But they're really brilliantly edited and I, it's a joy to see. And, you know, he he's like a lot of people who with car collections that, that I, I know and respect in that he drives everything. He wants to mm. buy stuff and he uses it. And I mean, really nails it. I think the video I watched with him getting his GT3 and he went and he was just about to tick over the limit where you can you can redline it. And literally that like two miles after he ticked over the 953 mile thing that says, right, now you can take it to the red line. He's like, right, well, we're going to go and take it to the red line. <laughs> I, I have to say- I love. The- the last one of theirs that I watched, which I think was him outlining his bargain CSL, which I would have, I would have walked to Birmingham to give him fifty grand for if I'd had it. I was, I was literally watching it, the video in one screen, and on my other screen, I was like browsing the Driftworks merch, thinking like that hood is quite cool, and I quite like that T-shirt. And it's yeah, just I know. Like- I, I bought T-shirts on, as a result of watching the video. So you know what. You know, it works. It, it, it's cool. I have, I've looked at buying bits from Driftworks, but I don't have at the moment. I don't have a car to put them on. But even when I did have a car, it was not really the kind of thing that would fit on mm. my car. But if you are in the in in the the market for some particularly nice wheels or suspension components or or other stuff that they stock, then you should check them out. Although I Definitely. don't think they need us to shill for business. But the Driftworks channel <laughs> is brilliant and it's homegrown it's it's the exact opposite of the kind of very sometimes overly clean and and meticulously prepared videos you get on youtube about you know car modifying and so on it's it's such the opposite of that it's the opposite of something like even mighty car mods where it is two guys who just 
love doing this, but they present it in such a clean way and, and their workshop is somehow messy and yet tidy, whereas I can't say that about the Driftworks unit or the, the Dino Talk <laughs> unit. But I, I've, I've gone on about this so long now. We've gone on a record amount of time, but I love it so much. Please go and watch it. Definitely. Um, and with that, that brings us to the end of episode four. 47 of the Automovie podcast. Please like, share and subscribe and all that good stuff. Leave us a hugely positive review if you were so inclined. If you thought our gag about driving to overdrive was particularly terrible, we <laughs> apologise once again. But we have, have to base an entire episode around a cheap gag. <laughs> like, um, share, subscribe. Yes. Uh, are we going to do another one of these before Christmas? We might manage to squeeze oh. one one more in a Christmas special before. before Maybe we need our, our our end of term where where you put down your World War Two poetry and uh, whatever else you used to do at school, and we'll watch Ferris Bueller again or something. <laughs> yeah, we'll come up with something, but I think we might do squeeze one more podcast in before the end of the year, certainly. Um, but for now, we are going to hop into our American muscle car. We're going to sling on a jacket made of silk with a scorpion on the back and cruise off into the LA night, <laughs> listening to Synthwave. <laughs>